Welcome to another edition of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob Podcast feed. This week, we have Chef BJ Lieberman, who joins me for about an hour 15 or so, I think. BJ's the executive chef and owner of Chapman's Eat Market over in the German Village here in Columbus. I spent like seven years in D.C. helping Aaron Silverman open Rose's Luxury, Pineapple and Pearls, and then also Little Pearl. And before that, got to start in Charleston and everything. So we kind of cover all that stuff and then talk about what's going on here in Columbus and the pandemic and opening Chapman's during a pandemic and, and all that stuff and what's next. So it's a really cool conversation, pretty into it and kind of inside baseball like most of these. So it's a lot of fun. Thanks again for BJ to coming on the podcast. So Chapman's is kind of like one of, or if not the best new restaurant, you know, in Columbus this year. It's probably close between, I think, probably them. Cleaver's another one that opened with Jay Clevin, who was on the podcast. He was the the first guest we had. So, you know, those are the two that come to mind when you think of restaurants that opened in 2020 in Columbus. And they're doing a bunch of different things over at Chapman's. I mean, they got takeout. They do the dine-in tasting menu right now. But, I mean, their takeout is there's always some sort of special running. They just recently, like, changed over the chicken sandwich to more of a Korean fried chicken sandwich. That looks really good. I've actually had the Korean fried chicken chicken that they did and that was really good so putting on a sandwich it's kind of like a no-brainer and he talks about some other stuff they got coming up too as well so make sure you're following eat chapman's on instagram bj's got his own account but he goes into pretty much he doesn't post that much his wife pretty much does all this stuff so we get into all that stuff it's a cool conversation make sure to check out all their stuff but here is the interview i did with bj lieberman at chapman's cool so thanks for coming on the podcast appreciate it kind of jump right into it. How did you like, how did you even wind up getting into cooking? Because like everything I read, you didn't even consider it until after college. You're supposed to be doing graphic design. (laughs) Yeah, I was doing graphic design. And I was working at a restaurant. So I've always kind of like been restaurant adjacent, like whether it's, uh, you know, Starbucks when I was in high school as a barista, or um, I got a job at a cafe when I was in college. And I eventually ended up uh, getting a job as a food runner and like a server assistant at a um, fine dining restaurant in Charleston called Carolina's. Oh, okay. At that time, I was in school to be a graphic designer. So I was waiting tables and I was in school to be a graphic designer. And kind of one day, I can't remember if I overheard a conversation or just something happened and they needed an ad made and their marketing director for their company had just left. And one thing led to another and I ended up making the ad for them. Um, using my graphic design skills, I knew that I wanted to do design for restaurants when I graduated. And they kind of like offered me the job of the marketing director for this company that had five restaurants, including a fine dining restaurant and a catering operation and all this stuff. And it was kind of like my dream job. So I decided to quit uh, graphic design school like two months before I got my degree and take my dream job instead. So uh, yeah, so I got to work one-on-one with the chefs developing their menus and our catering kitchen was in our corporate office. So I got to help out with, um, I was just always willing to jump in. So if like the catering chef came up and was like, we're in trouble on an event next Saturday, I'd be like, I'll come. Like I, you know, I'm not doing anything Saturday night. Let's go. So, uh, so I kind of just like was always around the chefs and always around the creative process. And I really loved it. And one day I was in my office with my uh, with the chef of the fine dining restaurant Carolinas, and he something happened. I got frustrated. I think we were doing the Thanksgiving menu, and like just something wasn't working, and I was frustrated. And he was like, "You know what? You hate this." And I was like, "I do hate this." And he was like, I, "I've cooked with you. You like cooking. Like, why don't you go to culinary school?" 
And that was like the first time I'd ever even thought of what that even would look like. And he was like, you know, I went to CIA uh, in New York. I can give you a recommendation if you want to go. And it kind of happened like that quickly. Like I kind of applied on a whim. Uh, I ended up leaving the the job at, at corporate uh, shortly thereafter and continued working with the catering. And then I got uh, accepted to CIA. I was 25 years old at the time. So it was kind of crazy just being like, all right, I'm going to drop everything and go switch my career on a whim. But uh, yeah, that's really how I got into cooking. But I've been in restaurants, you know, in one form or another since I was like 17. Was that just kind of like your first job, like in high school? Yeah, exactly. Um, My first job was at a place called Tuckahoe Recreation Center. And I worked in the concession stand, like literally just dropping frozen already pre-breaded chicken fingers into the fryer. And uh, I definitely didn't consider myself a cook or a chef or anything at that point. But it was a fun summer job. You know, I got my friends hooked up with free ice cream and stuff like that. It was just, you know, whatever. Um, And then I worked at Starbucks my senior year of high school, my freshman year of college. And then, like I said, moved into like kind of more like the fast fast diner situation. Um, And then eventually into fine dining. So it kind of was like one of those natural uh, progressions. It wasn't like I, I've been washing dishes at my uncle's restaurant since I was like 12 years old or anything. But, you know, I've, I've never really had a job that didn't somehow have something to do with the restaurant industry. Do you get flashbacks at all? Like when you go into a Starbucks? I can't say that I've been inside a Starbucks in many years. I was wondering. <laughs> uh, nothing against Starbucks. Just, you know, as you learn more about coffee, you definitely want to support the local coffee chains more than the corporate ones. Um, my parents do enough supporting of Starbucks for the whole family. So <laughs> so you went to, you know, the CIA Hyde Park up in New York. Do you, was that like beneficial for you? You know, you talk to different people. Some people prefer kind of working in a kitchen, learning on the job. Some people did go the culinary school route. It's probably like a 50-50 mix based on kind of people I've talked to. Was that something that like you definitely look back and were like, I'm glad I did that. Like that really helped push me to where I wanted to be. You know, it's that's a tough question. And I heard you and Jacob talking about it on uh, last week's podcast. And I, it kind of gave me some thoughts because I kind of knew that this question was coming. <laughs> um, that, you know, for me, culinary school was important. And it's really hard to separate uh, the means from the ends of like my career, uh, where if I hadn't gone to culinary school, a whole bunch of things might not have broken in the way that they broke for me. Um, ultimately, I think that you can get just as much of an education on the job as you can go into culinary school because I was a late career changer. Uh, it was important for me to learn those basics. I mean, you do the French 101 in culinary school and you get a broad, very broad, not specific, but broad overview of like all of these ideas. I didn't know what a roux was, what the mother sauces were, what all these things were. So like you come out of it, like not a master of it, but you're at least aware of those things. You're aware of how to theoretically do a whole bunch of stuff. You don't have the repetitions to really know, but um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that if you apply yourself, culinary school definitely, definitely has a lot of value. Um, for anyone who's like 18 years old, like leaving high school, who thinks that being a chef might be the, the path for them, I would highly suggest getting a job in the industry for at least two years before making that decision. Culinary school is just as expensive as being a doctor or anything else with absolutely none of the back end benefits. So um, I'm still paying off my student loans like crazy and will be for another probably 15 years. Um, so I remember, uh, like the first time I ever talked about student loans with, uh, with Sean at McCready's, um, he was like, I, I viewed him as a super successful chef and I'm like, he must have everything. And he was like, no dude, I live in a small house and I am still paying off student loans. And I was just like, like, okay. Like, um, 
yeah, it's uh, it's tough. And kind of starting off that anchor around you of student loans could force you to make some decisions in your career that are money-based as opposed to learning-based. And I think that, that uh, that's a real issue. Um, it's a real issue. I think the first few years of your career, you really shouldn't worry about money. And I think student loans make make that a reality much earlier for people than it should. So then, like you mentioned, so after, now was it, did you extern at McCrady's or was that after culinary school? So the CIA does it uh, really interesting. Um, your culinary externship you do right in the middle of the curriculum. So you do basically your first year, then you go and do a six-month externship, and then you go back to school and finish up. So um, I really wanted to do mine at McCrady's. I'd lived in Charleston for years at that point, and uh, I just started dating my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And um, I really wanted to be closer with her. I missed her after doing a year apart. So McCrady's was the only restaurant that I wanted to do it at, period. So I spent my entire spring break down in Charleston, my first year of culinary school, two weeks straight, 14 days in a row, doing doubles, uh, staging in McCrady's, trying to get my externship there. And uh, on my very last day, they finally gave it to me. So that was awesome. Um, so yeah, I did my externship in McCrady's uh, for Sean and Travis, who was the, the CDC at the time, who's now the head guy at Husk. Um, so it's pretty cool. Our kitchen lineup at that time was um, a murderer's row of, of people who are just wildly successful now. And I look back on those days and just can't believe the talent that was in that kitchen at the time. And I kind of, my station was on one side of the line. It was like a horseshoe. And I was on a station all by myself and could see across the line, the hotline. And like, just remembering back to those days of watching these amazing chefs who are all killing it now, um, cooking when they were, you know, 23, 24, 25 years old is just such a cool memory to have um and just such like i don't know an ethereal feeling that like i still can transport myself there of like that awe and wonder of like watching people just kill it uh you know it it set up a good thing to strive for from an early like culinary age for me yeah so like i know you said that that was the only place that you wanted to to extern at but in terms of like the application process i don't think a whole lot of people know like they is it different do they just give you a list and like, here's all the restaurants to choose from, go and apply? Or is it, you know, reach out to some of these places on your own? Like, how did that kind of, you know, obviously you only had to do the the one and you got there. But. Yeah, there's, there's two ways to do it. Um, the first one is to go to their pre-approved uh, list at CIA. They've got a, a list of places that like have the curriculum you're supposed to learn on your externship. And they'll, they have a whole binder that you can go through and see which restaurants, see what you'll be doing there, stuff like that. And then they also have an option that if you want to do one a, a site that's not approved, you can put in an application to get them approved. It's a big hoop to jump through for any restaurant to do it. Uh, luckily for me, McCrady's had just been approved, I think, like only like one or two terms before my externship was up. And when I got to McCrady's for my stage, they were just finishing up with an extern from CIA. So I had known that it was pre-approved. Um, yeah, it it was like I said, it was the only place I wanted to go. So if I had to like do the paperwork for them to get them approved, I, I would have done it. But luckily, they they were on the list already. So then, yeah, so you do that, you go back, you get your degree, then you pop back down to Charleston, right? And then you're at you're at McCrady's full time. So uh, the plan was actually that we were going to go to New York um, after I graduated, and that was the plan for the entire time. My wife was in culinary, or sorry, culinary uh, nursing school at the time, and we were both going to graduate pretty much at the same time. And we figured you can nurse and cook anywhere, so we could be transient. Was the idea? So you know, we'll go put in our time in New York City. 
Um, I have family from there. My my dad's from Long Island. I'm a New York sports fan. Mets, Jets, Rangers, Knicks till I die, which is, you know. I'm uh, sorry. Not the, greatest, <laughs> yeah, no, not been the greatest thing for me um, and my stress. A lot of these grays in my beard are from that for sure. Um, but the idea was that we were going to move to New York and kind of right before I graduated, maybe like two months before, uh, Sean was doing a dinner in New York and I went and met up with him to help him out. I did that a few times actually, but it was right before I graduated. And he told me that uh, a restaurant that I had known that they were working on, that was originally supposed to be a Louisiana restaurant called Sazerac. They had decided to rebrand before they opened it. And it was going to be called Husk and it was going to be the celebration of Southern ingredients. And if I was interested, he'd love to have me on the opening team. So uh, that it kind of happened that quickly where I was like, you know, what's the structure going to be? And they said, Travis is moving over from McCready's to run Husk. And I love Travis. He was like more my mentor at McCready's than anyone else. And, uh, I called Travis and I said, so I hear you're moving over to, to Husk. Like, what do you think if I came onto the opening team? And he was like, yeah, dude, like awesome idea. Like, let's do it. So it really happened that quick. I graduated in October and I think the restaurant opened in November. So like I got out of culinary school, moved down to Charleston, like we were a go right after that. So um, I really didn't have a break. It went straight from from that into like opening Husk, which was, you know, the hardest restaurant opening I've ever done and the hardest one I ever will do. So then you then you wind up at some point you meet Aaron Silverman. Yeah. So I actually met him uh, at the dinner that I was talking about in New York. This is like how crazy it is the way that like things just collide. So uh, Aaron was the CDC of a restaurant called Aldea for uh, George Mendez, who's a great chef in his own right. Um, and Sean was doing a guest chef dinner there. And uh, being the least experienced person on Sean's team, they kind of paired me up with the most experienced person on Aldea's team. So Aaron and I ended up working with each other for that dinner. And he is a Jewish boy from the DC area. So we immediately had that in common. We know a lot of the same people, oddly, from like back home. Um, so we kind of just like hit it off. We had a really good time at the dinner and then everyone went to the bar afterwards as you're one to do. And like everyone was sitting at one table and Aaron and I were just at a table by ourselves, just like talking all night. And I think I ended up sleeping in his apartment on his couch that night. Like we were just like, <laughs> we're two pieces of pot. So, um, so yeah, we stayed super close and he texted me one day after Husk had already opened and like the dust had settled. And we texted a lot, but he texted me one day and was like, I am moving to Charleston to work in McCready's. Uh, you're literally the only person that I know in Charleston. Will you like be my friend? <laughs> I was like, yeah. So I helped him find his apartment. Um, when he started in McCready's, uh, I would go and meet him at the bar almost every night after work and just like talk. And I remember one day after about six months, of him being in Charleston, he was like, listen, I figured it out. Um, I'm going to move back to DC and I'm going to open my own restaurant. It's like, that's, that's great. Like, awesome. When I'm home visiting my parents, I'll come and see you. Like, but I'm never moving back to DC ever. And he was like, okay, cool. Like, it's fine. And uh, yeah, he left uh, Charleston probably about a year and a half before Rose's actually opened. And we stayed in touch, but uh, it was a while before he actually contacted me about moving up to DC. How, how hard was the, was the sell to get you to move back? Um, well, he had asked me under false pretenses to come up and just like be a guest at one of his dinners that he was doing at his house. Um, and I didn't okay. know that it was a scouting trip. Um, so Brown and I were actually broken up at the time, but we were still kind of like talking. So I asked her if she wanted to go up to DC with me to have dinner with Aaron. She knew him pretty well too, from his time in Charleston. 
So she came up, we went to the dinner and he said, listen, I, I found the restaurant space. Like I just signed the lease like three days ago. Can I show you tomorrow morning? So we we're like, yeah, sure. So we met him, met him for coffee in the morning. We walked through what was going to become Rose's luxury. It was still like a house basically, um, had bedrooms and stuff. And we were walking through and he's like, this is where this is going to be. This is where that's going to be. And like, I could just see it. It's like, this is going to be the coolest restaurant. Like, I'm so happy for you, man. He's like, yeah. And then this is going to be the kitchen. And like, this is where the oven's going to be. And this is where the grill's going to be. And like, this is where the expo pass is going to be. And like, this is where I'm going to stand. And like, will you stand right here? And he handed me a piece of paper with a number on it. And he was like, and that's what I'm going to pay you. And I was like, what? And, and I was like, okay. And I looked at Brown and I was like, so do you want to do this? <laughs> and she was like, does that mean that we're dating again? And I was like, I guess it does. So we, it was like that quick and we decided to move to DC. So, um, I went back to Charleston, gave my notice to everyone, and it was a long goodbye. It was like six months I gave them for notice. And yeah, then we moved to D.C. So were you excited to be back? I mean, you're from originally Northern Virginia. So like, were you excited to be back in the D.C. area? Or was that something that like when you left originally, you thought, I'll, I'll, I've, been, I've been here, I've done it. Like, I, I'll probably never really come back except to visit family and stuff. I was excited about the prospects of leaving Charleston just because we'd been there for so long. And I was excited for mine and Brownwin's relationship to see what it would be like outside of Charleston. We had a lot of comforts in Charleston. We had a lot of friends. In D.C., we were going to have to rely on each other. Um, And I was really excited to open a new restaurant that was a completely different concept than Husk and what I'd been doing for for so long and really like explore other cuisines because Husk was very, I don't want to say rigid, but we were inside of a very tight box of Southern cuisine. So I wanted to see what what the rest of, you know, the cuisine world looked like. So I was excited about all of the things that went along with moving to DC, but I wasn't excited to be in DC itself. Uh, I just grew up there. I don't, a lot of people I feel like try to escape their home and a lot of people are always trying to get back to their home. I was definitely one of those people who felt like I escaped. After being in DC for a little while, I fell in love with it. I I was so happy there for a really, really long time. It was never really Brahman and my ultimate plan to like settle down there for good. There's just a lot of things about that city that aren't um, conducive to like longevity there, um, especially on a chef's salary. But uh, but we really enjoyed the time that we had there. And opening Roses was definitely hard um, for a million different reasons than opening Husk. But uh, but the first like year and a half just flew by. And then we decided to open Pineapple and Pearls. And then another year flew by. And then we decided to do Little Pearl. And like before I knew it, we were there for seven years. So it was kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah, I really, really, really enjoyed my time in D.C. I still talk with everyone there often. Obviously, these days we're thinking about D.C. a lot. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's definitely... Uh, it, my, my thoughts and my appetites for the city definitely changed over over time. So some people might not know, and you know, you're part of a documentary. Yeah. So it's called New Chefs on the Block. I think it's on IMDb. Um, you know, their streaming app and everything. But it's on Hulu, if I'm not mistaken, or Amazon. It might be on there too. Yeah. But you're kind of always in like the background of like all the scenes. I feel like it's always like you're half turned. But so when did you know? When did Aaron go? Hey, like we're gonna have a film crew in here, like doing this. Uh, it was fairly early on. Um, when I first moved to DC, uh, the restaurant immediately got delayed like a year. So, or like eight months. Um, I moved there in December of 12, I think. And the restaurant was supposed to open in March of 13. And like, right when I got there, Aaron was like, yeah, there's no way that that's happening. So he was like, we're going to do a series of pop-up dinners to, you know, test our recipes, um, make some money so that, you know, we can live in DC. And 
the first pop-up dinner that we did, he was like, oh, by the way, there's a film crew that asked if they could like film us a few times about what it's like to open a restaurant. So it started off as I thought that it would be like one or two interviews. They came to do a few pop-up dinners with us. And like over the time of opening Roses, they would show up like maybe once every other month and slap a microphone on and just follow us for service. Sometimes they would have questions. Other times they were there just like getting B-roll footage or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the the point of that documentary was that it was supposed to just be a small little project. If I remember, I think it was only supposed to be like a half an hour short. And the other restaurant featured in it, uh, Frankly Pizza, that's uh, Dustin, the director's brother-in-law. So it was mostly supposed to be about what it's like to open a pizza restaurant. And I think that they just wanted another perspective. Yeah. So that's why they followed us. What ended up happening was, uh, frankly, pizza is like the best pizza in the D.C. area. It's incredible. Um, and it got well reviewed and all those things. And Roses ended up being, uh, you know, one James Beard Awards, one Michelin Stars, one Best New Restaurant. So kind of the incentive for the film crew to keep following us was there. So it turned from like what was supposed to be a 30 minute documentary into a full length feature. Um, so yeah, it was kind of cool to just have somebody kind of like documenting that. It never really felt like they were in the way. Like every, every once in a while, like once every month or so, there would just kind of be a camera in our face during service, but it was never like a big deal. And, um, I'm kind of shy when it comes to like cameras and stuff. So I definitely tried to avoid it. So if you saw me like half turned away, it was mostly because I was trying to half turn away. Do you ever go back and like watch it for like inspiration or nostalgia or you're like, it's kind of happened. It's in the past. Like. I haven't seen it in probably a year or so. Um, every once in a while, I remember that that even happened. Um, and, and you know, maybe watch a, a clip from it. I, I actually think that I think it was a really, really well done movie. And I find the Frankly Pizza parts of it to be like really inspiring. I love that Frank's an awesome guy and his wife and his parents. They We all know each other through like the film coming out and stuff. And I've eaten at Frankly Pizza. It's truly amazing. So like I actually find their part of the story to be like really amazing. But I also love going back and seeing like our opening crew and like our general contractor, Nacho. Like I never think about him, but like he's in the movie a lot. And I'm like, Nacho, what's up? <laughs> like, uh yeah so it's it's kind of a cool time capsule to go back to um my thoughts on a lot of things have changed since then like like not for the worse or for the better just you know i've matured as a chef and a cook so like uh it's interesting to go back and like see kind of where my head was at those days and some of those interviews but so then you know you you're basically the sous chef at roses i think you guys get like a three-star review from the washington post like you said best new restaurant bon appetit it's kind of all in in the documentary to james beard all that stuff and you guys got really busy did that like was there a moment where you guys were just kind of like ah shit like we're gonna be really busy (laughs) like yeah, I like to say there's good restaurant problems and there's bad restaurant problems. We had a lot of restaurant problems and they were all the good variety. Um, I remember the day after Bon Appetit came out, we decided to close. Um, part of it was the hangover from the party that we had. The other part was we had to figure out what the hell we were doing. Like, I, I've won the Bon Appetit Best New Restaurant at Husk before. I know what it did to a restaurant. And I was like, guys, we're not ready for this. Like, we're not even in the ballpark of ready for this. Like, we were already starting to get some lines outside the restaurant um waiting for like waiting to get in we were no res we were walking only restaurants so 
we only had 90 seats. So, you know, 300 people wanted to come and eat in a night. So there was no place to like wait. We didn't have a reservation list or anything like that. So I was like, we we're already starting to get a little bit of a line outside the restaurant before opening. Like after Bon Appetit, like this is going to be insanity. So we closed for the day. We figured out theoretically how we were going to deal with things, how we were going to triple production, what we had to do for staffing up, for hiring, for all that stuff. I think at that time we were staffed of like maybe like 25 people total. I think after Bon Appetit, we slowly worked our way up to like 50. Um, we were maxing out at, I think like 130 covers a night. We had to figure out how to do like 200, like really quickly. So yeah, it was really hectic. I remember... Um, I remember just being in the weeds every day and like we kind of gotten to the point right before Bon Appetit, we were starting to take days off. We were starting to work normal hours and it was like Bon Appetit came out and we were just thrown right back into it again. It was like another restaurant opening all over. And uh, yeah, it was, um, it was definitely a positive experience. Uh, the, the review from the Washington Post was, was awesome when it came out because that's not really what we were setting out to do. But in D.C., it's kind of hard to avoid um, Washington Post, Washingtonian, City Paper. They all have their own reviewers and they're all out in force. They all love the new restaurants. So um, we definitely ended up on a lot of radars pretty quickly. Um, but we didn't do any marketing at all. Like up to this day, I think they probably still spent zero dollars on on proper marketing. So do you think it's possible to still do kind of the no reservation system? I mean, I know like you guys did it. I think Dave Chang did it when he kind of first started out. And eventually you kind of have to abandon it. But Noodle Bar didn't have reservations. And I waited in that line a few times and it, it was worth it. I mean, the thing is, no reservations is great for a few reasons. And it sucks for one, for one very specific reason. Um, it's great because your guests are there. You know that they're there. There's not going to be any no-shows. There's not going to be anything like that. You're not guaranteeing that they have a reservation at 8 o'clock. So, like, say our 6 o'clock reservation runs late. The 8 o'clock people are then there like, what the hell? You told me I have a reservation at 8 o'clock. Why, why isn't there a table? If you do walk-ins, it's like, yeah, you know, we'll seat you in the table before you was done. And, like, you know, there's a nice way to say that. What I just said isn't how you would say it. But, uh, um, yeah, so there's a lot of benefits to that. And then also you're almost guaranteed, if you're a busy restaurant, you're guaranteed to have a button in every seat all the time because you're not waiting on reservations to turn or that your eight o'clock time slot didn't book or whatever. So if you're a busy restaurant, there's a lot of positives to having a no reservation policy. The one big suck of it is that people might have to wait in line or you can't control that 300 people showed up on a Saturday and you only have 200 slots. So you need to tell a hundred people they can't dine at your restaurant that night. And that just like doesn't compute with people. Um, so that was tough. But like I said, good restaurant problem. We're so busy that we don't have room for all the people who want to come. Um, eventually we started taking limited reservations at Rose's. Like you said, uh, when it comes to Chapman's and what we're doing now, we decided that we wanted to open with reservations. Um, and that was before the pandemic hit. We had already kind of made that, that decision. Uh, what we do after the pandemic, I'm not really sure. I could see us thriving in a no reservation system, but I'm also not sure that Columbus wants that. So it's a little bit of like, there's some sides to play. And like, we need to talk to the staff. I know that, it, you know, our, our hostesses at Roses were the, our hosts and hostesses at Roses were the front line and generally the people who would like get yelled at. So there was always a manager that kind of had to be posted near the door in case someone got ornery. Like people just don't want to hear no. And I, I get it. Um, so we, we kind of needed like almost like a manager bodyguard to be near the door at all times, just in case someone started to get ornery that we could, you know, pull them aside and, and have a conversation. So like I said, there's definitely some, some, some uh, drawbacks, uh, no reservation system, but what we were doing at Rose's, the, the house party we were throwing every night, that vibe really worked for us was like the frenetic energy of people just excited. They got in after hours of waiting and whatever. Um, 
it was cool. It worked. So Silverman goes on, he opens, like you mentioned, Pineapple and Pearls, which were you, I mean, you kind of sat that out, right? That one? Uh, you kind of did really want to be a part of opening another restaurant at the time. Yeah. So I helped uh, design the kitchen. I helped uh, with staffing and stuff like that. But when it came to the food, like ultra fine dining like that just isn't my thing. Um, I've never had any aspirations to, to do that type of food. Uh, I love eating it. And I love enjoying and I love talking about it. But uh, yeah, just the, the level that you need to execute at is a, a pressure that I feel like no one should really put on themselves unless they really want to. So not only that, but Roses was still getting busier and busier at that point. And I had at that point, Scott, who was our CDC when we opened, he left. So I was kind of running the show. And as Aaron was opening Pineapple and Pearls, I was kind of running the show by myself. And um, I enjoyed it. And to be honest, I didn't really want to go through another restaurant opening uh, at that time. And Aaron seemed really motivated to do it. And we had a whole bunch of our staff who wanted to do it. So I was like, all right, you guys go party and I'll stay here and rebuild, you know, what, what we're losing going over to pineapple and pearls. And for a really long time, uh, that model really worked and I enjoyed it. Like I had a lot of freedom. Um, we got four stars from the Washington post, uh, during that time, which was awesome. Um, especially when we were opening an ultra fine dining restaurant for us to be the ones that got four stars was pretty cool. Um, and ultimately I really wanted there to be camaraderie between the two restaurants. And I felt like if anyone else was running the show, there could be some sort of like resentment that all the energy is going into the new child when I wanted to make sure that the the oldest kid was taken care of too. Maybe that's because I'm the oldest kid. I don't really know, but, um, but yeah, that, that was, that was a really, I think, good decision to, to, like you said, kind of like sit that one out. Um, and yeah, let, let them figure it out on their own. And they did. I mean, I, I don't think I could have added anything to what they did there. They, it was incredible. And it's still incredible. I mean, when they reopen, I know that, that they're messing around with menu items now. They're like, what I'm seeing, what Aaron sends me pictures of that just look insane. So then, and when they opened Pineapple, um, in the front part was like a coffee shop that they had. And then he spun that off into Little Pearl. So were you involved with Little Pearl when that got spun off to its own? So Little Pearl was was kind of 100% mine from the beginning. Um, we were So I had always kind of said, the thing that I helped the most with the Pineapple and Pearls was like the financials. Like I would look at the P&Ls every month and kind of like figure it out. And I had been telling Aaron forever that the cafe of Pineapple and Pearls was losing losing money, like straight up. It was in the red and it was in the way of the fine dining. And Aaron just really wanted a cafe. Like there was just no way of talking him out of having a cafe. So this is another like random story where a whole bunch of things collided at the exact same time. But Aziz Ansari was in town and uh, he's a big fan of roses and him and Aaron like text. So Aaron, I, I had opened the restaurant that day. So I was already home around like nine o'clock and I got a text from Aaron. He was like, put on some decent clothes, nothing too nice. And there's going to be an Uber outside in 10 minutes. I was like, okay. And he was like, I can't tell you where we're going, but we're going. I was like, Okay. So I went outside, we hopped in the Uber, it was just me and him, and we went to uh, Old Epic Grill, uh, which is an old hangout near the White House in D.C. It's one of our favorite places where we have a lot of our celebrations. And we walk in, and we just sit down at a table with Aziz Ansari, his brother, and like their tour manager. I was like, what? <laughs> what just happened? And uh, we had a few seafood platters and had a good time and talked and whatever. And then they had to go catch a train. So they left and Aaron and I were still there. And I was like, that was crazy. He's like, you know, that was crazy, but that's not even why I asked you here. Um, we were just offered a space that's in, um, it's an old naval hospital uh, about a block and a half from where Roses is. And they had a carriage house on site that had become a coffee shop that wasn't doing very well there. 
Um, and Aaron was like, we were just offered this space, but I won't do it if you don't want to do it. But like, do you have interest? And I was like, yeah, I have interest. So I was like, what are you thinking? Should we move pineapple or should we move the cafe at pineapple and pearls? And that's what we ultimately decided to do and then turn it into a wine bar at night. So, uh, the concept came together really quickly. Uh, it was already a restaurant, so we didn't have to build it out at all. So it was kind of like, I think we had that that meal uh, with Aziz Ansari, and then he asked me about it, I think in like April, and I think the restaurant was open in November. It was just like, boom. So um, that was also the restaurant where he gave me a budget to redo the kitchen in any way that I needed to. He gave me carte blanche to hire, to pretty much do the menu. Like he had to approve everything final, but like I did everything to open that restaurant. I uh, helped lay out the front of the house spaces with the general managers. I managed the budgets for everything. I ran the, the contractors and kind of at the end of that project, I realized that I was ready to do my own restaurant if I wanted to. Um, so for a little while, I was the head chef of Roses and Little Pearl. Right. And they both, you know, they both wind up getting Michelin stars, too. Yeah. So we actually got the Michelin star for Little Pearl about a month after I left. Um, the inspections would have happened when I was there, but it was actually really cool because the guy who took over um, for me as chef, Brody, has been like my little brother for years. Like he comes to my family's Thanksgiving because he's from California and can't fly out every year. So like he's literally like my little brother. And getting to hand him the reins of the restaurant and then a Michelin star along with it was like the coolest thing for me. He was the first phone call that I made when I found out. And I was like, congratulations, dude. Like you're a Michelin star chef now. Like this is like amazing. Um, but yeah, that was that was really cool. I actually was already working at Freedom a la carte here in Columbus when we got the Michelin star. And I was doing a delivery uh, for Freedom a la carte and had my phone FaceTiming the entire staff at Little Pearl when they were doing their their uh, lineup. I was like, all right, I got to hop out. Like congratulations, everyone. I'm carrying bags into a hospital to drop off food. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that was, that was crazy. I thought that, I thought the little Pearl was about a year away from getting a Michelin star when I left. So I kind of left Brody with like a, a timeline and a map of where I would go if I wanted to, to get the star. I really didn't think that we were there yet um, by the time that I left. So um, yeah, it was just really cool that that, that happened. And um, they don't like to take Michelin stars away. You really need to, to mess up to lose your stars. So I knew that they would be safe for quite a while. Um, so yeah, it's, it's awesome. Which of the, I guess, I mean, you, did some with pineapple and pearls, but which of the two openings was the most difficult out of those? Roses, roses, one hundred roses was, was the hardest. I mean, we didn't have any systems for anything. The, the cool thing about opening restaurant number two is that you always have um, restaurant number one to fall back on. If you forget to order heavy cream, if you know, if a million, if your walk-in goes down, if a million different things happen, you have backups of everything. Um, where uh, roses, we didn't have anything. If something happened, we were on an island. We were completely on our own. And we had no infrastructure. We had no no uh, real plans for how we were going to do things. You don't know where anything goes. You have no no like uh, uh, intuition on anything. So yeah, o- opening a new restaurant, a one-off is very, very difficult. Um, opening number two and number three were definitely hard, but way easier. Then you kind of decide that you know you want to open your own restaurant. And I think you started looking around. You didn't want to do it in D.C., and I think what the three finalists were San Diego, Chicago, and Columbus. Yeah, San Diego wasn't wasn't even really a finalist. It was just like kind of a pipe dream, like let's go live on the beach and you know, not not in Charleston or anything like that. Like really get a, a restarted for a million different reasons that didn't make sense. But really the finalists were Chicago and Columbus. And what I was doing for a while was flying up to Columbus at like six AM on like a Wednesday and going around with my restaurant broker and like seeing seeing spaces and then i would fly back to dc around noon and go immediately to work and nobody was the wiser 
that I'd been doing that. So I was doing that for a few months. And then I got a restaurant broker in Chicago. And we kind of did the same thing where I was looking at spaces there. And uh, yeah, we found a few that we really liked here. And we found a few that we really liked there. And we're kind of like going back and forth. And ultimately, um, we found a project here that's in the brewery district that I fell in love with. And I was like, okay, I'm moving to Columbus to, to do this project. And it immediately got delayed by like two and a half years. So uh, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in the meantime. And I thought it would be cool to just work for someone else for a little while. I've done nothing but open restaurants for the last 10 years. So um, I thought it might be cool to work in a restaurant that was actually established that had like things that I didn't have to create. Um, but as soon as I got here, I realized that I just like didn't have that chill button. So I started looking for other spaces and the original Max and Irma space kind of came to our attention. And, and the original idea was that it would be a pop up for like six months. Uh, while they tried to find a permanent tenant. And uh, my wife, Brahman, was the one who was like, no, like we we need to take this and start like, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. And I really saw what her vision was for the space. And uh, and yeah, that, that we kind of decided to, to do it kind of just like that. So you moved here, that you guys started, you did a few pop-ups too before, you know, before Chapman's even, even opened. I think you did one uh, at the Locks Bagel Shop, right? I think you used them for once. And Yeah, we had it. Yeah, we had a plan with Kevin at, at the locks to do a whole bunch of um I'm actually repping their hat right now. Um we had a plan with, with Kevin to do uh a, a whole series of dinners at the locks once every month for a little while. We called it the unkosher uh pop up. Um, you know, at a bagel shop, Jewish guy in it. <laughs> uh but yeah, I love pork, so yeah, unkosher. Uh we had a plan to do it once a month, so we got one uh one in. And then the pandemic hit. I think that our one was like February 7th and our second was supposed to be March 7th. And it, uh, yeah, it was literally like we went into lockdown and that was it. No more pop-ups. So we only got one practice run in before uh, we got the space for for Chapman's. And you're working at Freedom a la carte while doing all this too, right? Yeah, I started working at Freedom um, as the head chef in September uh, of 19, right when we got here. We got to town on a Friday and I started work on Monday. Um, and my last day there was around New Year's. Um, so I was only really there for like three or four months and, uh, hired Lori, who's their chef now, who's incredible, um, to be, to be my replacement. So I was still helping out with things like here and there, but I wasn't like the chef anymore. Um, so yeah, I was pretty free from like December through February. We were going to start these pop-ups, um, which was cool. I haven't been free in forever. So, um, yeah, I can't even remember what I did during that time now. It kind of runs headlong right into the pandemic, and I can't even remember where my head was at. So like you said, you take over the Max and Irma's, well, originally Max and Irma's space. Then it became, I think, it was a pierogi mountain co-working space. And then it was this place called Wonder Bar at night. But they get kicked out because they're holding like like basically just nightclubs. They're doing like a nightclub thing at night. Residents are complaining, so they get thrown out. Um and then you wind up getting the space. What did I never saw it before when they had like the co-working space? What did that look like? Because I still can't envision it. Calling it a co-working space in the in the dining room area is like generous. There's a second floor and a third floor that are really the co-working spaces, and they they're still there. Uh, okay. um, so yeah, they, they're empty right now, which is kind of great for us because if we need a conference room, we can just go steal one of them upstairs. But uh, the co-working space had access to the tables downstairs during the day. So like, if you didn't want to work at a desk and you just wanted to work at like a restaurant table, you could do it. 
Um, but yeah, it's not like there were printers set up or like uh, cubicles or anything like that. It still looked like a normal dining room. And like, you know, there'd be people working on laptops right next to a group of people drinking a beer and having a bowl of fries or whatever. So, okay. Yeah, it was a, it, it was definitely a little wonky. Um, we went to Wonder Bar a few times. Like I, I love their drink selection and like, it's obviously the old Max and Irma. So it looked awesome. And uh, I think ultimately uh, having the kitchen and the bar aspect of that separate was probably not, not like the, the thing that was going to sustain them for too long. And Progy Mountain really, I'm happy for them. They got their own brick and mortar where they control the front of the house and the back of the house. So um, I think it worked out well for like literally all parties. But you, you wound up like when you guys started doing the demo and the renovations, I, I think you guys chronicled all of it on like Instagram, but what was, I guess, the most the most challenging part of doing all that? Uh, was it like do, redoing the kitchen area or because I mean, you guys like redid the floors. Um, you had to, I think, resurface the walls. Everything, everything was a thing. Um, starting from the pandemic, just not just not playing with a full deck of cards from the beginning. Um, that sucked. Uh, the whole kitchen floor got replaced, which it needed to, because when you used to walk into the kitchen, it felt like you were just going to fall into the basement. So we replaced the entire kitchen floor. Uh, we weren't going to do anything in the walk-in and the walk-in freezer. But when I really got in there and like inspected it, all of the shelving was like so old that it was just rusted together. So we actually needed to take a sawzall to it and cut it all in half just to get it out of there and then have someone come and take, take it to the dump, whatever. Um, the Ansel system for the hood was like really out of date and needed to be completely overhauled. The electric in the building needed to be like mostly overhauled to get our stuff going. Uh, Ethernet cable, just like everything, like everything, all the plumbing, all the drains, everything had to be redone. Like we didn't have a really large um, construction budget. We never did blueprints or anything like that because it was just supposed to be a facelift. Like we didn't pull permits or anything because we weren't moving any walls. We weren't um, doing any like construction. But uh, I ended up hiring a GC just to like help with painting and stuff like that. And we didn't have a proper like blue, like what, like what you normally do with the restaurant, have blueprints and stuff like that. Like we literally had a piece of scrap paper that every day we just write what needed to be done. He logged his hours, uh, logged his materials, and I would pay him on a biweekly basis. And we really got through the pandemic like that. So when it came to things like painting, like we helped paint, we helped uh, we built all the bookshelves, all the built-in bookshelves. We built those ourselves. We, uh, yeah, we just did a ton of stuff ourselves. So like we were really in construction and we weren't thinking about food at all. So like when we finally passed health inspection, we're like, oh crap, like what are we going to do for the menu? So that was a whole other thing. Like normally you would spend all that time during construction, figuring out what your menu is going to be, figuring out your systems and stuff like that. And, uh, first off opening during the pandemic and having to do takeout only in the beginning wasn't what the plan was. So we had to like move on the fly to figure out what we wanted to do to go wise. And then, yeah. And then figuring out like what our next pivot was after that, what type of staffing we needed, all that stuff. Uh, yeah. So like everything about construction was just horrific. Working in a hundred year old building is tough enough. Um, we still have problems every single day that, that we deal with plumbing, stuff like that, that, you know, it's the joys. It's just part of the yeah, deal. The joys yeah. of working in an old building with old infrastructure, but did you, I mean, I know you put, put a lot of that stuff on like the Instagram and Instagram stories. Did you ever consider like, maybe I should film this? Uh, I, I'm not like that kind of like, I actually hate social media and I hate that like, that's how we need to communicate with people. Um, I hate taking pictures. Like I, I have a good like memory for stuff like that. And like, almost like sometimes your memory is more rosy than 
than otherwise. So like I choose to remember things certain ways <laughs> where like maybe if it was really documented, it's like, oh, maybe it wasn't that awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, I like to live in the moment more than behind my camera. Um, my wife's really good at taking pictures and documenting things. So like I let her do that. But uh, yeah, you'll rarely catch me like with my camera out, like taking pictures of stuff. Did the, did the wallpaper you order ever show up? No. And I actually recently found out that uh, it's probably because we didn't order it. Oh, uh, okay. We're not sure, but we, we think that we actually maybe didn't order it or that run it first got lost that we canceled it. It's one of those two things. So I'm not waiting for wallpaper to show up anymore. We've, we've got it all. Compared to other openings, I guess, like was how nervous were you with this one? This being like, it's your restaurant where, you know, the other ones, yeah, you were heavily involved and, and even with Little Pearl, like you did all of it, but it was still part of kind of the, the restaurant group. But this is this is yours, like your name's on all of it. Yeah. I mean, I tried to play a little mental trick with myself where it's ours. You know, I try to say ours, not mine all the time. Like I really feel like our managers have emotional ownership over this. And eventually I want them to have real ownership with me on it. Um, Right now it wouldn't be fair to give them ownership because we have (laughs) way too many, uh, 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 what's it called? Um, Just trust me. They wouldn't want ownership of what we have right now. Um, But uh, in a lot of ways, the pressure was much lower on opening this restaurant because everyone was in a really weird spot with COVID. And uh, we were just opening doing to-go food. And I was pretty um, confident that our burger was incredible. And I was confident that our chicken sandwich was incredible. And our fries, we spent a lot of time working on our fries and the pasta that was on our original menu and the cow soy. And um, I was really confident that our dishes were good. And I was confident they would travel well to go. So we didn't have to worry about the service aspect because everything was ordered through an app. Everything is just come in, pick it up and go. Um, So it was weird. It was like not very much pressure. In a lot of ways, the actual opening of this restaurant was by far the easiest one that that I've done. And like we were from the beginning, we were only working like 12 hour days, which is a lot. But for a restaurant, it's not. So like and we were taking days off, like we're closed Sundays and Mondays right now. Like there's were Sundays in the beginning where I just wouldn't go in. Like we didn't need to. We had everything that we needed under control. So it was just really weird. We just kind of hit the ground running in a really good place. And then as we decided to do in-house dining and as we decided to expand our menu a little bit and our offerings, we did it slow enough that it felt very natural to grow that way. Um, to staff up, we decided not to open in-house until we had the staff in-house to do it and they were trained and all those things. So I feel like, you know, for all the bad things that happened with the pandemic, I feel like there is like a very, very small blessing in there that we did get to bring this thing along really slowly and kind of like ease into ourselves a little bit. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, you know, for a million other reasons having to do with the pandemic, it was really difficult getting everything in place, uh, all that stuff. Um, Like I said, I've opened a lot of restaurants, Wesley, um, our CDC and Justin, our uh, sous chef have all opened restaurants. So like we kind of all brought a little bit of expertise to bear. Seth, our uh, bar director, uh, opened his own bar a few years ago called Blind Lady Tavern. So he knew what he was doing with an opening. Um, yeah, and, and Pam helped open uh, Monero in Charleston as well. So like we all had opening experience. So like when it came time to go, we all kind of knew where our lane was, where to stay into it. I told everyone like, I'm not going to mess with you. If you need help, I will help you, but I'm not going to like sit here and like course correct you. Like we have a job to do. You know what your job is. Like let's get it done and. I just want to support. So that's why I say ours instead of mine. So yeah, the pressure I feel like wasn't wasn't that big. We were all in on the same page. Hey, you guys also do, you know, one of the things you guys do there is uh 
ice cream, which kind of, how did how did that all come about? Was that something that you were just playing with, and, I, and then you kind of pass it along, or? Yeah, so I love ice cream. I love making ice cream. I was in charge of the ice cream program at Roses for the first few years that we were open. And like, I had never made ice cream before we decided to do it for Roses. And I always thought there was some mystical art. And then as I started to do it, I realized it's pretty simple if you pay attention to what you're doing and you know how to like season food and you know where things are going, you get good ingredients. So I always loved it. We always talked about eventually opening an ice cream shop in DC. It always just kept falling in the back burner to the back burner. So when we got to Columbus, I knew that we were going to do ice cream. I didn't want to like necessarily jump into the waters with Jenny's and Grater's and Johnson's and all the great ice cream that we have here. So I knew that we were going to make our own ice cream. I never really had thought about putting into a pint until we decided that we were going to do all-to-go food. And I was just like, well, that gives us a really good opportunity to do something fun with our ice cream and get some cool branding for it and all that stuff. So I found a pint that I liked and I sent it to uh, our graphic design team. I was like, what do you guys want to do with this? Like, this could be really cool. And they just put together the coolest color palette and the coolest design for these pints. And uh, I showed Justin and I showed Wes how to make my ice cream base the way that I do it and how to spin it on. Uh, we have a really nice ice cream machine called the Carpigiani that's uh, Italian. It's really expensive and it's worth it. Um, spins incredible ice cream. It spins it fast, like 10 minutes per four quarts. So... We started messing around with it and pretty much Justin took a liking to it right off the right off the bat. He'd made ice cream before, but never really with my recipe. So he just immediately started coming up with these crazy flavors. So Justin is now fully in charge of our ice cream program, um, which is great for me. I love when other people cook because it's not my ideas and I get to like sit here and brag about how awesome Justin's ice creams are. Um, so yeah, um, I love our ice creams. I think that eventually we want to scoop shop here. Again, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. Uh, who, who, you know, forged the way before us. But we really like what we do. We feel like it's different from what everyone else is doing. So we feel like it's something we want to share. So, you know, you guys do to-go. You have kind of the dine-in stuff that you guys are doing too. What's what's next for, for Chapman's? I mean, you mentioned the ice cream, but like what what else? Well, the original space that we looked at that we wanted to move to Columbus to do is still on the table. Um, we're working really diligently at the blueprints for the layout. It's a really, really big project that we're not the only part of. It's a it's a much bigger project that we just have a small section of. But um, we're looking to do another restaurant. Um, I'm a restaurant person, love restaurants, uh, probably a bar. And, uh, you know, down the road, we've talked about being in the short north at some point with something, whether it's just like a little burger place or whether it's like a full-fledged bar, maybe speakeasy type deal. I mean, I don't set out looking for a space to do a bar in. I set out looking for cool spaces and then we figure out as a team what would work there. Um, So whether it's something more Mediterranean vibe or something more like Brooklyn or like whatever, um, we let the space dictate what we're doing. Like I, I didn't set out to do like what we're doing at Chapman's. It's just what the space really was calling for, I feel like. Uh, the original Max and Irma's space. So I definitely normally have a little bit of a lighter touch, I feel like, with with food these days. And I feel like what we're doing at Chapman's is a callback to like more of our Southern roots of like very bold flavors, very, um, very soul satisfying. Um, some of this stuff definitely makes you think it's it's definitely a little heady at times, but but more than anything, it's just comfort food. And I think that during the pandemic, honestly, that's what a lot of people just need right now. So um you know, we've got a lot of tricks up our sleeve. We all have a lot of experience in a lot of different cuisines. So uh, we'll see what the next space really wants to be. And we'll we'll take it from there. Are landlords still uh, pitching you spaces that are currently occupied? Uh, I actually haven't gotten a pitch on a space in a little while. I don't know if I maybe turn people off or if that if 
the reality of the pandemic has finally set in with people that like no one's going to take a space right now. Um, but you know, I, I feel like, uh, cause what was like, what was that? Like the first time that, you know, somebody reached out to you like, Hey, you know, we got the space, you know, come look at it. And then you're like, uh, there's people still in here. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, that never really happened like that. Uh, okay. but, but it was, but it was more like, um, you know, a restaurant closed because of COVID and then you're getting an email about it from, from a restaurant broker being like, Hey, like we heard that you guys are really cool. We have an opportunity for you. And I'd look at it be like, that restaurant just closed last week because of COVID. Like, no, I don't even want that. Like, um, but there were still plenty of spaces that we were looking at before, like before we decided to take the Max and Irma's space, um, we looked at a lot of things that were really interesting that maybe just didn't work for us at, at that moment, but that I could see us revisiting down the road. And most of those places are still available. So you know, you're referencing an article that came out in Columbus Underground a little while ago that I had said that I wouldn't take any spaces uh, that had been uh, closed due to COVID. And I was hoping that all the chefs in town would kind of like buy into that idea so that when the pandemic's over, maybe these restaurateurs can try to get their space back. Like Ambrose and Eve, for instance, like I hope that Katie gets a shot to get that space back if she wants it. If she doesn't want it, then, you know, so be it. Yeah, they did a lot of work to that. To yeah, they did a ton of work to that. I, I, before that opened. Yeah, and that's somebody's dream there. Like that's, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, that's right down the road from us. So I, I've eaten at Ambrose and Eve a bunch of times, especially right when we got to Columbus. And I love those guys. I love Katie. And I know Matt's no longer with them, but Matt's one of my best friends in, in Columbus. And just to know that that place closes, heartbreaking. And, you know, if Katie wants it back, I think that she should have an opportunity one way or another to get it. If somebody comes in and just snatches that space up, that's BS. That's that's upsetting. If Katie doesn't want it back, then I think it's a beautiful space and could house something really awesome. But I can't see it as anything other than Ambrose and Eve right now. Uh, what's behind the uh, the hidden door? <laughs> the, the hidden door at Chapman's. Uh, there's a private dining room back there that we're not really using due to COVID concerns, obviously. Um, if we have really good friends who we know have been like responsible and stuff, then, then we'll let like small birthday parties, like six person birthday parties back there. But uh, oh man, we can't wait to use that room. That was, um, we were trying to figure out. So that room, when it was Wonder Bar, was like a dartboard room and it has a, it has access to the kitchen. There's a door that leads directly to the kitchen in the room. So we knew that we wanted to use it for a private dining room. And I was trying to figure out with our designer, like what, how are we going to separate the private dining room from the space? And we thought about everything from like sliding frosted glass doors to maybe like the uh, Japanese, um, like folding. Uh, uh, yeah. Pri privacy uh, partitions. Yeah, exactly. So we thought about all that. And I remember we were sitting in my apartment one night talking and he turned around and looked at me. He's like, <gasps> I was like, what? He's like Harry Potter doors. And I was like, well, like a moving bookshelf. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I'm on it. And like immediately just like started doing research and um, I was going to hire someone to build it. And uh, I just realized that like the mechanicals of it really aren't that difficult. And I'm not that good at working with wood or anything, but I was like, I think I can do this. So uh, we built that moving bookshelf. Just uh, Seth and I did it ourselves in, over the course of like three, four days. And uh, yeah, it really came together. There's a little problem with the wheels scrape the ground on it a little bit that I need to fix. But since we're not really using it, it's, it hasn't been a problem. But like when we actually, uh, go to open and I need to put a little more construction work into it. But yeah, it's really cool. It's my favorite part about the restaurant. We haven't even gotten to debut it really yet. You know, I got a few other questions here, kind of ask everybody. So we'll just kind of run through them. Uh, who, who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Oh, 
That is a tough one. Um, probably from like a cook's per- perspective, uh, Travis Grimes, who's the head chef at Husk. Um, I learned more about how to just like power through um, prep and like just how to be an amazing cook from him than from anyone else. As far as like food theory and management theory, probably Scott Munns, who is our opening CDC at Roses, who's still with the group. I, I think that he's like the director of research and development for uh, Roses group now. Um, but he was really like my older brother and he just is so calm all the time. And opening a restaurant is like really stressful and just having a calming presence around is... I have a wild story to tell you actually about Scott. Um, and this is why he's like my mentor for this is uh, it was like the third day of service. And I can't remember what happened, but I was in the basement at Rose's doing something. And Aaron came down and told me that something got messed up. And I was just like, my fuse was just so short that I punched our walk-in refrigerator and put a tiny little dent in it. And Aaron looked at me like mortified. And he was like, I don't, I don't even know what to do with you. I'm going to get Scott. And I was like, okay. So Scott came downstairs and he was like, dude, you punched the fridge. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like I just lost, like I lost it. I'm sorry. I like, I'm good now. And he's like, bro, don't punch the fridge. Cause I don't know how to fix the fridge. And he moved the speed rack out of the way and just punched a hole in the drywall. And he goes, I know how to fix that. Punch the drywall from now on. And I was like, okay, got it. He's like, don't tell Aaron I did that. And like slipped the speed rack back. And we came in the next day on our day off and fixed the drywall. But that was Scott, and that's why he's my mentor from a like Zen point of view. What's the one kitchen item, not a knife, uh, that you can't live without? Um, probably my grandmother's spoons. Um, when my grandmother passed about a decade ago, uh, she had really nice like sterling silver uh, plating spoons that you know you would use on like a buffet or something like that, and they're just perfect for plating. I, I've used them for my entire career. Every day, like I couldn't start service at Husk if I didn't have my spoons. Like I would make everyone stop and like go find my spoons before we started if they weren't in in my container. Um, that and I have a little pair of uh, JB Prince offset tweezers that are great not for doing like like flour things or anything like that, but just like. They're your great second set of hands. Like if you need to move something instead of touching it with your fingers, you can just touch it with tweezers and then, you know, really quick sanitize them and then they're, they're good to go. So those are two things. I always have um, the tweezers on my apron and I always have uh, my spoons, my Bay Marie. I probably couldn't do service without them. What's, uh, what's the one Columbus restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? So somebody's, you know, gets delayed at the airport, they're stuck overnight. They're like, hey, BJ, where, where should I go eat? You guys aren't open tonight. Uh, that's tough because I actually feel like there's a lot of really, really, really good restaurants here. Um, I, I know that you want me to say one, but I really can't single anyone out. So I'll tell you my top three for night. All right. Fair enough. Service bar, uh, commune, and I would have put Ambrose and Eve up there, but probably right now Rue would be up there for me. I really like Rue. I thought that was a great meal. Um, and then Block's Bagel Shop for brunch. When you wake up in the morning, when you, your flight got delayed and you need to go back to the airport, stop at the Locks on your way out. What's, uh, what's your kind of bucket list, like travel destination, bucket list restaurant that you haven't been to that you want to go to? Oh, boy. Um, I've got to go to a lot of mine, honestly. Um, let's see. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, trying to think where I haven't been that I wanted to go. Probably, I don't know, probably somewhere in, in, uh, Korea, probably. I don't, I don't even know like a specific restaurant, but I just really want to go to Korea and, and eat at like a really nice Korean restaurant. Um, I've done Japan, Thailand, uh, Paris, London. Like I, I'm like, I'm not going to say like some three Michelin star restaurant. I, I love that stuff, but like, I don't know. It's not like my death bed list. There's a, a guy, he's got a, He's got 
basically the same restaurant, one in Seoul, one in New York City. It's called Junsik, but he also does like uh I forget what it's called. It starts with a T and I butchered it anyways because it's in Korean, but it's like basically North Korean food, like the noodles. Mm-hmm. That always sounds super interesting. Like if you wind up in Seoul, like yeah, something like that, or like going to Vietnam, like going to like a hawker stall, like that would be on my deathbed list. <laughs> list, not like you know, I, I want to eat it like the three Michelin stars in Paris, but like I can die without having done that. But like if I don't go to a hawker stall in Vietnam or a uh, or to Korea and like have some like proper Korean food, like yeah, I, I can't imagine not getting that in my life. Uh, craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you were working. Um, we set off the Ansel one time at a restaurant that I worked at that had a wood fire oven, um, because someone had turned the hood off the night before and I didn't even know that there was a hood. So we set the Ansel off, but it failed. It didn't actually go off. So the fire alarm in the building went off. The fire, the firemen came and they have this like monitor that they look at and, uh, it shows the temperature on it. Like you've seen it in like infrared, like predator, you know, like red. So they're like going down the line and they're looking at all the hoods and all of a sudden they got to the hood over the oven. The thing just turned white. The entire screen just went white. And the fireman goes, Oh my God. And I was like, what? And he's like, that's over a thousand degrees up there. And we eventually waited for it to come down. We've got the oven, uh, all the wood out of the oven and stuff. We waited for the temp to come down when they pulled the, the like hoods off of the thing. The entire Ansel system that behind was behind it was melted. I'm talking about melting, melted metal back behind. So uh, if the Ansel had gone off, that would have been pretty cool to see. But it was even cooler that it just melted the entire Ansel system. So that's the craziest thing that I've seen in the restaurant. You guys didn't get like they didn't get fined for that or anything, right? Because it was a result of the no. So it was actually crazy um, because we found out after that. So when the Ansel system goes off in a restaurant, um, there's a little hammer that falls that cuts all the gas off to the kitchen, and there's a little breaker box that cuts all the electricity off. The idea is so that like if you have a fire, you don't have your deep fryer and your gas and stuff going. Um, so we found out when everything happened, we were resetting the whole kitchen that at some point the, uh, gas hammer had fallen. And when they went to reset it, they only lifted it about halfway. So we'd been working, you know, the, the ranges were the proper amount of gas because everything had been teased up. But when they actually pulled the hammer all the way up, we had flamethrowers coming out of our, out of our stuff. So it took like two days to fix. So once we got the line back up and working, we were like cooking on ranges where flames are just like flying around the pans. It was the craziest environment to work in. And finally they came and they, they fixed all the regulators on everything. But yeah, so that fire, uh, that the hood being turned off that day caused a whole bunch of crazy stuff to happen. What's your, uh, what's your food or drink guilty pleasure? Uh, guilty pleasure. Uh, I don't really feel guilty about anything I eat. I'm on a diet right now. So I guess that I have some, some, you know, uh, well, actually, yes. Uh, store-bought sushi um, is like, I can't go to the grocery store without buying crappy sushi and eating it on the car ride home. And Tensuki Market uh, up on Kenny Road has literally the best store-bought sushi I've ever had in my entire life. Like better than in Japan. Like I am so obsessed with that place. And now that I'm on a diet, I can't have it. And, uh, yeah, I, I miss going to Tensuki like all the time. Uh, what's like the, the favorite, you know, your favorite dish or that thing that you ever cooked, you know, created, like, what's, what's that one thing that you look back on and you're like, that's the moment that like, I kind of like understood everything. Um, it was probably a, a really simple dish. Um, it was the first, uh, one that I really worked on start to finish at Roses. And I, I was really concentrated when we opened Roses on not doing Southern food. Because I felt like that was kind of like my my like comfort zone. So I really tried to do other cuisines, but I could never really take a dish all the way over the finish line by myself. I always needed help uh, from Scott or from Aaron to 
to, you know, add, add the whatever to like get it done. So I was sick. Uh, it was probably like the second month that, that we were open at Rose and I had a little cold or flu and I really just wanted my grandma's matzo ball soup. And that's like all that I wanted. And I was really thinking about why I wanted the matzo ball soup and like beyond like the chicken broth and stuff. Like what was it that I was craving? And I was like, I really just want like really good glazed carrots and dill is really what I want. And like I'm equating it with matzo ball soup. So I started thinking about that and I, I realized what the flavors are that like make matzo ball soup special can really be deconstructed into just like a few really simple things. So I got back to work uh, after I was feeling better and I poached uh, carrots in chicken stock and uh, whey um, from some buttermilk that we had made to give it a little bit of like a sour uh, note and then uh, glazed it with butter and chicken fat and then took matzo meal and seasoned it up with like garlic powder, onion powder, like all the things that you would expect to be in a matzo ball and kind of topped it with that. And then we did uh, mascarpone that was whipped with a little bit of chicken fat and dill. And it was like the first dish that we did that like wasn't anything. Like it wasn't anything classic. It was just like, here's some carrots with like matzo meal on top of it. And it was crazy. It tasted exactly like matzo ball soup, but it was, you know, a, a bowl of carrots. And um, that was kind of my the first dish that I had just had done start to finish that came out um, just like really good. And, and uh, that was that was definitely like an aha moment for me of like how to finish a dish, how to conceptualize it, like how to talk about it. I get, it drives me crazy when like a cook or a chef brings me an idea for a dish and it's like a list, like, all right, here's my dish. It's almonds, pork, Romanesco sauce and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's a grocery list. Like, that's not a dish. Like what, like, what is it? And I'm like, explain to me why, why you're doing it. And it's like, well, I really love um, this dish that I had at a restaurant one time that's like roasted pork, like over like a really warm sauce from Mesco. The thing I love about it is it's like spicy and fresh, whatever. And then like this crunchy element on top. So I thought the crunchy element could be almonds. I'm like, there you go. That's a dish. Like now we're talking about food. Now I understand what, what we're talking about. And like, that's kind of, you know, where that started for me is like, conceptually, why are we doing this? What is the end goal? Like, how are we going to explain this to people? And, and that was definitely the dish that like, taught me uh, that. Um, And it stayed on Rose's menu for six months, which was a really long run for for dishes back then. What's, uh, what's your favorite Anthony Bourdain episode moment scene? What's the one that stands out to you? The Chiang Mai Thailand one, for sure. Um, we were really lucky that when we went to Chiang Mai for our honeymoon, um, we had, uh, a friend who lived there and he was like, I'm obsessed with Anthony Bourdain. When he was here, he did all these things. I'm like basically going to take you on his trail. And we basically relived that entire episode. We did the Ladyboy cabaret. We went and ate the raw pork blood soup. We did like all the things. And it was just really cool. Cause that's the first time I've ever like, just like done that. Like, um, and then he did one at CIA, uh, that he filmed on my externship. So I wasn't there and that stunk. But when I got back to campus, everyone was like a buzz about Bourdain. And like, it was just cool to see the CIA through like that lens. And like, I was currently, I was enrolled there at the time. So like, it was all the things that I do every day were in that episode. So it's interesting because we, one of the podcasts that we mess around with, we were rewatching all the parts, unknown episodes. And when we did the Thailand one, we had a pretty big debate as to if you would do the raw blood soup or the brains. I chose blood soup and everybody said I was crazy while everybody else would go with the brains. And I was like, I don't know, man. Like it's it's really dark tomato soup to me versus like kind of a custardy brain thing. Like I'm I'm I think I'm going soup. So the soup was delicious. So and this is like my takeaway from it was this is validation for me. It didn't need to be pork blood to make that dish work. Like you could have done it 
with cherry juice or something else. Like the, you couldn't taste the blood. What they do is they rub the blood with uh, lemongrass, I think, right? Yeah. And lime leaf and it coagulates it. So just like making cheese, there's curds and whey essentially. So they let the liquid drip drip out and the whey they just throw away. So all that you're drinking is basically like the liquid that's in blood. I know that, that sounds weird, but it doesn't taste irony. Like all of that stuff, everything that makes it taste like blood is gone. So all that you have is like the delicious lemongrass flavor and this really like clear red broth. And it's delicious. And um, yeah, I don't think that it needed to be pork blood. Like I would have been just, but all the things that were in that dish were mm. crazy. And um, that's actually the first time that I had fried lime leaf um, to garnish that. And because of that meal, because of the raw pork blood soup galoo, uh, we put the raw, uh, sorry, the fried lime leaf on our cow soy at the restaurant. Cause that's, you know, what makes me think of it is, you know, the crispy lime leaf is like a revelation to me. It's so good. It's like eating Fruit Loops uh, as a crispy garnish. Well, that's that's all I got for you. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, open invitation whenever you guys, you know, have some new thing you're rolling out or whatever. You just want to talk food. But, uh, you know, glad to have you in German Village or close by where we live. So, yeah, how was how was uh how was your last meal? I, I haven't heard your thoughts on the third tasting menu. Uh, yeah. See, we're actually coming back for Valentine's Day, so I'll do yeah. I'll do like a little podcast for both of those. Um, so is what I wind up doing. But yeah, like the like we couldn't figure out with the matzo ball soup that I mean I don't think I've ever had matzo ball soup before, so I didn't really have a reference point. But it was still it's amazing. Like it's really simple and it's just good. And I, I'm thankful that. I had something that, you know, when you eat matzo ball soup, it's good versus the first experience being something that was like, you know, matzo ball soup from like a chain restaurant or something. Yeah. And then it's kind of like less than and you're like, oh, I don't like matzo ball soup. Yeah. Like the first experience of dishes sometimes is so important because if you get a bad one, it kind of it really makes you apprehensive to to having it in the future. Totally agree. I'm like half convinced that most people's like food phobias come from like having bad versions of things in the past. Yeah, I'm a big seafood person. So like that's, you know, you whenever I encounter somebody who's like, oh, I don't like seafood. And you, you don't like any of it. And they're like, no, I don't. And it's like, you've probably just had crappy seafood. Like that, you probably just never had good seafood. There's no way you shouldn't like any of it. So people are afraid and overcook it or, you know, cooking grocery store seafood at home make, makes your house smell terrible like you need to get it from reputable places like i don't even think the grocery store should sell fresh fish that's my that's my like hot take on that like you can't get really good fish from a grocery store you have to go to a fishmonger like a real one yeah and it's tough so uh where can people find you guys plug all your stuff yeah uh well on instagram it's at eat chapman's uh uh, it's eatchapmans.com for uh, our website. I'm trying to think what other media we have. That's really it. We're on Facebook um, and uh, 739 South 3rd Street. We're doing takeout food through Chow Now. And we've got a tasting menu, eight courses for $60 that we do in-house. Um, as Ray said, we change it up often. And we're on our third unique menu now. After February, we're probably going to move to a fourth uh, unique menu. We're also going to do a Vietnamese thing for one week that's going to launch uh the menu's going to launch this week for it it's going to be one week of special dinners that are uh all vietnamese inspired from one of our cooks matt um lived in vietnam for six years and he pitched us on this idea to do like north to south through the dinner um of dishes that he loves from vietnam and we're like yep absolutely we're going to do it for an entire week so this is matt's week is that to go or is that in-house too or in-house only so it's 
yeah. And like, we're churching some of the stuff up a little bit. Like we're, we're adding some like techniques that we haven't really taken out of our bag. Maybe some stuff that we learned back in McCready's back in the day when it was more of like a molecular gastronomy kitchen. We don't do that stuff a lot, but I feel like this meal is like calling for it. So awesome. Well, yeah, I'll let my wife know and then we might be back sooner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, one thing you probably can't answer this, but I told her I would ask. She wants to know if she can have the recipe for the almond cake that was on your. Absolutely. Our recipes are open source. Like anybody who wants them, like well, I'm super open about that stuff. If you want a recipe? Yeah. Like, uh, we have each other's email. I'll send it as soon as I pull it up off of our uh, Google Drive. But um, that's our sous chef, sous chef Wes's recipe. And it's really interesting. The way that you put it together is like no cake that I've ever seen. So it uh, it's really cool. Um, and it's delicious. Awesome. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on. We will probably be seeing you very soon. Like I said, open invitation whenever you feel like coming on. Got new restaurant or ice cream or whatever you guys got going on. But Hope so. Thank you for the time, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks again to BJ for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Like I said, make sure you check out their website. That's where you can book a reservation if you want to dine in. They also have the online ordering there. There's some new thing on kind of the to-go menu probably once every week. They got ice cream that you can get to as well. Uh, all of it travels. The to-go food does really well. Pretty much everything I've had, we've enjoyed that we've gotten to-go sure to follow their Instagram too as well, Eat Chapman's. The name comes from, might have even been great-grandfather, had a place in Clintonville way back when called Chapman's Poultry Market. So that's kind of where the name comes from. It's kind of like an homage to that. So in case you're wondering, we didn't really touch on it. I feel like it's widely publicized as to where it comes from, just in case if you didn't know and you're wondering. More to come on, you know, different chef interviews that we're trying to get people booked for. So we got a couple in the works, uh, a couple already in the hopper too as well. So, you know, normally do these every two weeks, but with all the kind of special stuff that Chapman's has going on, felt it was more appropriate to run this one this week, kind of line up with everything that they're doing. So you're just going to get a few of these in a row and, you know, maybe we'll schedule in a break there uh, one week off or something. I don't know. Figure it out as we go, but make sure to check out all the past guests that we've had. It's Jake Clevin of Cleaver, Kevin Wang of Akatsuki, and then also Jacob Inscore of a yet-to-be-determined uh, restaurant once he relocates over to New York City. And the next week will be Matt Spinner of Baroni. It's a pretty long one, too, as well. I think we did about like two hours, and we didn't even get through all the stuff that we wanted to do. That one's awesome. You know, I've, I've listened back to it. Matt's great fun. So that's a pretty cool episode too, as well. Make sure to check out, you know, Instagram, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from Spotify, Apple. Uh, we got a YouTube channel, so you can listen to the podcast through YouTube if you want, right through, you know, your TV, your computer, phone, if you use YouTube for, for that stuff too, as well. There's no video component with it, just kind of a still shot, but all the audio is there, just as if you're listening to from Spotify or wherever. Pretty much every podcast app, Breaker, Audible, Amazon Podcasts, we're on all that stuff. So just make sure you subscribe. Everything will download. The restaurant reviews, the chef interviews that we do, and then also Parts Now Known, all that stuff. It's all in the same RSS feed, so it'll just download to your phone or laptop, whatever device that you're using, so you don't have to subscribe to different feeds or anything. It's all on one. For convenience, check out the website. There's always new stuff on there, You know, different chef profiles. is able to kind of order different stuff, and people transition to consumer packaged goods and making all that stuff online. So... Uh, Aaron Franklin, you know, that's something that we just uh, finished up doing. Bianco Pizzeria, 
you know, we did that too as well. So those profiles are up there. Brett Fife over at Ghostwriter Public House got some stuff up there because we there recently too. So and constantly updating any place that's already on there, whether it's Chapman's, Veritas, Josh Dalton, whatever. So make sure you're constantly checking that stuff out. Help spread the word. Anybody who's looking for, you know, content, it's getting pretty slim out there these days. We're always trying to put out something new that's enjoyable. Either it's a place that you wind up wanting to go eat at after, or you just at least get entertainment value out of one of the podcasts that we do. So appreciate everybody listening so far. Continue to help spread the word. Rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. And we'll talk to you guys later.